0: The American Battlefield Trust seeks to preserve our nation's hallowed battlegrounds and educate the public about what happened there and why it matters today. They permanently protect these battlefields for future generations as a lasting and tangible memorial to the brave soldiers who fought in the American Revolution, the War of 1812, and the Civil War. You can help save battlefield land today by visiting battlefields.org. What's up, everybody? Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Tattooed Historian Show. My name is John. I am the Tattooed Historian. And this week, I want to bring you the audio from a great live stream we had this past week with Dr. Peter Carmichael, the Director of the Civil War Institute at Gaysburg College, and Ranger Chris Gwynn from Gaysburg National Military Park. He is the Chief of Interpretation Education. And we spoke about one part of the battlefield which is the most heavily visited area of the field, and that would be Little Round Top. We talk about Little Round Top, the landscape, how people interact with the landscape. We talk about Colonel Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain and the 20th Maine, and how popular history has influenced how we see that action, including movies and books. It's a really great discussion, and you get to hear a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff as far as Uh, This is how people interact with the site. These are the changes that preservation has brought in. So this isn't a battle history, per se. This is more like your cultural history of a site. And uh, it's a really great discussion. I really enjoyed it. This was, as I said, from a Facebook Live that we performed that was sponsored by the Civil War Institute. And it really went over very well At one point, we had 250 people watching at one time, which was just amazing. Double our usual numbers for an evening program. So I think you'll get a lot out of it, and I hope that you enjoy it. I also have the video of this up on YouTube with the closed captioning. So if you have any friends who would rather watch and uh, see it in that way, please let them know that it's up there. But this is our great conversation about Little Round Top and Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain and interpreting that site. Really hope that you guys enjoy it. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to this live stream presentation this evening. Uh, my name is John. I'm the Tattooed Historian. And tonight I am joined evening, by my good friend, Chris, Ranger Chris Gwyn, live from Gettysburg. And I'm also joined by Dr. Peter Carmichael, Director of the Civil War Institute, Gettysburg College. How are you fellas doing? Doing good. Doing Happy. good? Right? Ready, <laughs> good ready for... Living. Ready for another live stream? Can I have,
1: yeah. share with everyone what I got? Yeah. Oh, yes. I got this from Jeffrey Gable, who's the head of the Majestic Theater in Gettysburg. I gave him a tour. And of course, when you work for the federal government, right, Chris, you cannot take any gifts, any organization. No. but when you're a lowly academic like myself, there are some benefits and I love peeps. It's one of the, uh, really the last sort of I would say delicacies left in the modern world. So I've, I've, <laughs> gone, through, you know, I've gone through one row by girls, Cam and Isabel, they've helped me get through them as well. So if I'm a little hyped up tonight, we know why. We'll know why. You I'll, have the sugar,
0: right? You have the sugar I'll, in you.
1: I'll, I'll, <laughs> and they're like ridiculously fresh and I'll, this will be it. I won't talk about peeps
2: anymore. <laughs>
0: and sorry chris you don't have any snacks right nothing for this. no
2: no My body's a temple I don't- oh, okay <laughs> yeah. you're a park ranger you have to be fit you're out there in the outside right.
1: engaging the public it's just academics for sloths
0: <laughs> the
1: parks have being
2: in the ivory tower peter
0: there you go there you go well we have a really great topic tonight because it's a it's a topic that a lot of people uh, visit Gettysburg to talk about, to see, uh, to experience, and that is interpretation at Little Round Top and Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain. And uh, we, why did we choose this topic, Chris? Why'd you like this topic? <laughs> why did we choose this topic? I don't know. Why? So <laughs> I, I think I sort of pushed it. Oh, did
1: you? Yeah, I did. Uh, last fall, Chris took my Civil War class uh-huh. out to Little Round Top and he He did an incredible job, not just telling us about what happened at Little Round Top, but he also did a really insightful job of helping my students understand the construction of historical narratives and focusing on Chamberlain and the different accounts from Joshua Chamberlain. Uh, It opened up, I think, I know it it, it opened a different way for my uh, students to understand Mm-hmm. And before Chris gets going, I just want to do a quick plug for Chris. We should note, is a Gettysburg College mm-hmm. alum. 2004, is that correct?
2: I graduated in 2006.
1: 2006. And while at Gettysburg, I believe is when you started to do some volunteer work for the park?
2: Or so, I'll tell you what, my first year at the college, I worked at the Civil War Institute. I was with Gabor Borat. Back in the mm-hmm. yeah. And then I got a uh, internship at the park, working with John Heiser and Scott Hartwig. That was my first national park experience. And you know, I fell in love with it. And I've been fortunate to be able to make a career out of it. Um, so it's been a, you know, a wonderful journey. At, uh, you know, I wish I was a student now. Uh, the Pohanka program does amazing things across the, the parks. The public history minor at the college. I mean, so many things um, that I wish I had at my disposal when I was a student.
1: And I should add, we just hired another Civil War historian, Jim Downs. He's currently at Connecticut College. Right. You might have read his book, Sick from Freedom, and it mm-hmm. looks at um, what I would call refugee camps or contraband camps. It's an mm-hmm. important, impressive piece of scholarship. And so uh, the students at Gettysburg College and the ones, our future Gettysburg College students, uh, will have Jim Downs uh, to take classes from, which is a fantastic. Great. Wow. Just
2: yeah,
1: yeah, an, an official announcement? Yeah, I hope I haven't jumped the gun there. I know. I it's
0: uh, Breaking news.
1: Yeah, no, it is kind of breaking. Last week, I believe, is when everything was finally settled and uh, he signed on the dotted line, so to speak. So he's, he will
0: definitely be here in the fall. Awesome. That's fantastic. Fantastic. Fantastic.
1: That's great. So Chris, you know, I'll get us started here. Yeah. You give us a little bit of background about your early experiences at the park. Mm-hmm. And I just would like to have a sense how visitors who came to Little Round Top, who came to the 20th Main Monument, could you just tell us, you know, what informed their thinking? What were their expectations? when they came for one of your tours?
2: Yes, that's a tough question to be able to answer. You know, one of the things I find fascinating um, about Little Round Top is you have all these layers of history kind of stacked up on top of one another. You, of course, have the pre-battle history of the park, which is actually fascinating. You, of course, have the battle itself. And then you have kind of the development of the battlefield uh, at Little Round Top the different organizations and entities that manage that landscape uh, and that's all fascinating and then you have this uh, additional layer of kind of popular culture uh, on top of it. So you ask me let's see I started with the park in 2003 and if you were to ask me what the kind of general visitor uh, experience was at Little Round Top in 2003 a lot of it was driven by again popular culture. So it's the movie Gettysburg, it's the novel The Killer Angels, and something about those um, pieces of of, of work uh, really brought the, the the Joshua Chamberlain and the 20th Maine story to life. So you know early on in my career, Gettysburg the movie was an absolute touchstone for people. They saw it on TNT. They got the, you know the box set. They saw the 17-hour director cut. Or, you know, <laughs> there's this sense that I've always had for a lot of visitors who come to Little Round Top is that they're trying to commune with uh, the story of the battle with Joshua Chamberlain, with the, the fight of the 20th Maine, uh, because it's become such kind of a fixture of our kind of American uh, fabric. And so I want to go to a place like Little Round Top and, and feel as though they're, they're communing with the authenticity you know, of the hill. Uh, but you, you look at Little Round Top. Um, if you were to go to the 20th Main Monument in 1982, uh, you'd f- f- barely find a trail out there. It. Yeah. yeah it, was, it was overgrown. There was no signage, there was no interpretive panels. Um, so, you know, it's evolved so much. Now you go and the, you know, a portion of uh, what was once called Chamberlain Avenue has been repaved. Uh, the the site gets incredible visitation. It is the single most visited spot in Gettysburg National Military Park. It's a little Round Top. We get a little over a million visitors a year, and virtually uh, every one of them almost goes to Little Round Top. And again, it's that sense of place. It's that sense of uh, you know these rocks were here, and that 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 sense of again communing with the kind of the spirit of the past on the hill. Today, though, uh, I don't think Chamberlain is the well let me rephrase that i don't think the movie gettysburg is as significant to our visitors today as it was 10 years ago or as it was 15 years ago i think in a certain sense though uh joshua chamberlain has kind of at least joshua chamberlain in the 20th and 21st century has kind of outlived the movie uh he's he's significant now in kind of his own right in terms of uh, again how americans who visit Little Round are thinking about the past. He's been, uh, you can buy t-shirts with Joshua Chamberlain's face on it and go up to Brunswick, Maine and go to the Chamberlain Tavern. Uh, You need a Joshua Chamberlain action figure. Um, So he's outlived the popularity
1: of the movie. I I Let's step back a little bit. What do you think about the movie Gettysburg and what just focus on its depiction of Chamberlain? You could talk about the combat, you can talk about Jeff Daniels.
2: It's tough for me to be able to look at that movie objectively because, in a certain sense, I'm so emotionally attached to it. Right. So mm-hmm. when it come out, like 92, 92?
0: 93.
2: yeah, yeah, I'm ten years old, and the, the movie just it captivated me. It was amazing. It just captivated me. I fell in love with uh, you know Joshua Chamberlain with with uh, that depiction of of, of the battle, mm-hmm. uh, and you know you. I dislike. I dislike it when individuals look at a movie like Gettysburg, or the novel The Killer Angels, and, and try to pick it apart and try to um, critique it as a, as a work of history. It's really not. Um, anyway, I was listening to John's interview with um, Stephanie Walter Seals. Am I saying that name right?
0: Yeah, Stephanie Seal Walters. Yeah.
2: Stephanie Seal Walters, and she was talking about the movie The Patriot um, and how. That movie took incredible liberties with, with uh, the story of the American Revolution in the Carolinas. The same thing with uh, the, the Hamilton uh, Broadway play. I and mean, it's, it's a work of art. It draws from the past, but it very much is kind of its own thing. And the value of those things, Gettysburg, Hamilton, is not that they're this, this f- forensic analysis of the past, but they're entry points for people, mm-hmm. people interested. They ignite some sort of, of spark that then uh, hopefully, and at least certainly in my case, encourages you to want to learn more, to visit places like Gettysburg. I mean, the park saw a huge surge uh, in the mid nineties after the movie Gettysburg came out and that little social trail uh, to the 20th Maine monument, you know, became the Joshua Chamberlain Highway.
1: Right, it's, it's, it's right. like a highway.
2: Right yeah. yeah, it is. It's, you know, yeah. It's an old roadbed, but it leads you straight down to the, the spur where the 20th Main Monument is. Mm-hmm. I think. This is just, as, just as Joshua would have wanted it. Oh, uh, no doubt. No doubt. <laughs> <laughs> and we, can talk, we can talk about that. Yeah. But the, the value of, of popular culture is that it provides people with that entry point, it gets right. them interested. Uh, and so I find far more uh, value. Uh, in, in those works, those, those mediums um, than then things I can pick apart and kind of uh, detract from the, the, the film or the play. You know, Hamilton, for example, after that, that Broadway play opened, the Hamilton National Historic Site in New York saw an increase in visitation that was 174% higher than what it had been the year before.
1: And I'm sure they weren't prepared for it.
2: Oh no, no,
0: no, no. Right.
2: Yeah. No, and I, I say this with a great deal of respect for the agency that I work for, but a lot of times the park
0: service is very reactionary. Right, you can't anticipate. Right.
1: Well, that happened with Ken Burns as well.
0: Right. Absolutely. that's what I was thinking with Ken Burns. Yeah, yep. yeah.
1: It was overwhelming. Yeah. Also because that was back in the day when the fall was not particularly busy, right? Your season was mostly the summer. And burns yeah. was in the fall. So they didn't have seasonal staff uh, to absorb that visitation, which is always a good problem to have. Uh, but yeah, like you said, it's difficult. To, mm-hmm.
2: to- you know what I would say too to that point is what we're seeing at parks like Gettysburg is this kind of evolution in visitation where visitation is on a somewhat downward trajectory. It's not as precipitous as some people make it out to be. It's not as calamitous as some people make it out to be. But what I think is more interesting is patterns of visitation are changing. So, you know, on a normal day in the summer, your Little Round Top's busy. Right. On a normal day in October, Little Round Top is incredibly busy. It's incredibly busy. Mm. Yeah. Um, so that, that idea of, you know, kind of the summertime visitation, this is when people go to parks. It's true. Mm. But we get a ton of people in the fall now.
1: hmm and in yep. the spring, the school groups,
2: right? Yes, oh, yeah. yes. yes, yes. I mean,
1: the yes. buses are all over. I mean, they, they were all over the place, but yeah, it's impressive. Well, and they still
2: are. And that's, I mean, we can talk about that too, but uh, the effect that all that has had on Little Round Top is increased visitation. People want to go to the hill. They want to, they want to go and they want to touch the 20th Main Monument. They want to climb up on the same boulders that Strong Vincent was climbing up on. And so in terms of the Battlefield Park's management, Little Round Top is one of what I would call kind of the most fragile park ecosystems, for lack of a better word, a cultural landscape, for lack of a better word. And so we have a lot of challenges uh, at Little Round Top, erosion, um, soil compaction, the toppling of, of, of breastworks that had been built initially during the battle and then restacked over the years. So it's a very, again, fragile uh place but it receives incredible amounts of visitation. Uh, oh I'm
1: sorry John go right ahead.
0: I was just gonna say uh two points really that uh my father took me to Gettysburg for the first time in 1988. I was I had visitation on a Friday with my father. He took me there just happened to be the 125th anniversary. He had no mm. idea he was never in the history. So he's like I'm gonna take my son to the battlefield. He took me to Little Round Top. that was where we went. And that was just the thing. My picture on Little Round Top in 1988, just this little kid sitting next to a, yeah. uh, next to w- where weed fell, you know, and it was there. And uh, I'm also wondering, uh, also going to say that we have double the amount of people watching this live that we've ever had. So this shows you what Little Round Top is to a lot of people. And Joshua, Joshua Chamberlain, name man. recognition, name recognition coming around. Uh, what about Chris with like, people go up there to see the scope of the battlefield because you'd see most of, the battlefield other than Culp's mm. Hill area you can see the scope you can get you can see clear up to the peace light on a clear day uh, on the north end of the field do you see people doing that for that reason just to showcase how broad the, the certainly
2: certainly you know we have we're fortunate at Gettysburg and we have this amazing cohort of uh, licensed battlefield guides and so these are essentially contractors or they're self-employed mm. they lead personalized tours of the battlefield and virtually all of them get out a little round top virtually all of them uh, because there's so much that kind of appeals to the visitor that you can find on the hill. One, it's this kind of iconic landscape, right? It's, it's, it's unique. It's this hillside covered with rocks and boulders. It's this very kind of iconic terrain. You can see almost the entirety of the battlefield from there and there's value in that and kind of, uh, Giving people the spatial understanding of the battle and of the park. But yeah, back at the end of the day, it's beautiful. It's gorgeous up on Little Roundtop. You can watch the sun set over the distant hills. Uh, it's this, this, such a, a pull Little Roundtop has on people. It's such a pull. And so, yeah, you know, I'm not surprised your dad brought you to Little Roundtop. It's kind of on the, you know, the Gettysburg bucket list. It's one of those things you, you gotta do. You gotta park your car, you gotta go walk out to the summit kind of take that whole expanse in so we see a lot of that i mean you go up to little round top any day of the week uh, at sunset and the place is places nice. it, right. it just you know it
1: reminds as we all have our our childhood memories of gettysburg and of little round top and of devil's den a powerful reminder that often that first connection to the past is a very imaginative one right it's very magical it's not mm-hmm. necessarily historical and i think public historians don't lose sight of that very often. Academic historians almost always lose sight of that. Uh, and it goes even back to your point about the movie itself and what you said about the movie reminded me of what Steven Spielberg said when he gave his uh, November 19th address, Spielberg did yeah. at the National Cemetery in which he made you know an obvious but important point. What he does is quite different than what we do as historians. We have different purposes and we reach and connect with our audiences in different ways and that emotional that visceral linkage or that connection is mm-hmm. so vital and that's why it's always so reaffirming in the spring to be driving around the battlefield and seriously there's just wherever you turn there's another school bus mm-hmm. and even if those kids aren't paying the best attention to the guide when i see them climbing all over those rocks Hoping to God that they don't fall and <laughs> right, break an arm or a leg. But as they're doing all that stuff, I'm thinking, you know what? They'll never forget that, right? Mm-hmm. And maybe someday, hopefully sooner rather than later, they'll pick up a book and they'll read and they'll think more seriously about the Civil War. Oh,
2: you know, I absolutely agree. Um, and, and, you know, Barb Sanders, who's the education specialist at Gettysburg National Military Park, will often tell our young interns or seasonals. Uh, I mean, about that very thing. And uh, oftentimes we ask them, you know, how did you get into history? What, what propelled you to want to work at Gettysburg? Or what propelled you to want to take this Pohanka internship? And more often than not, it comes from a shared experience as a child. And that might be visiting a place like Gettysburg. It might be, you know, talking to your, your grandfather about his experience in World War II. It might be any host of things. And I would say for most visitors to Little Round Top, and you kind of alluded to this, Pete, uh, for most visitors, it's not an intellectual exercise. It's an emotional exercise. Uh, that's that's what's pulling them there. Uh, but again, it, the value of that is, provides an entry point into the study of the past, hopefully, and this is something the Park Service cares deeply about, it, um, it transitions people from not caring about parks in the past to becoming stewards of the parks in the past, okay. and that's you know a, a job that the National Park Service takes very very seriously. So instilling this idea of uh, stewardship, and we got to preserve this place because we want to we want to pass this legacy on to our to our kids. So of, that's what results from a business to the world.
1: So talking about sort of childhood experiences on the battlefield, I'll bring it back to Chamberlain. Uh, I was fortunate. Uh, To get to know Alice Trulock and her husband, Jim Trulock. Alice Trulock wrote what I think is, well, I think it still is a biography of Joshua Chamberlain that is still exceptional. She didn't find much fault with Joshua Chamberlain, but she did a lot of original research, as did her husband. The Mm -hmm. book is called In the Hands of Providence. And she told me during the research, they met Chamberlain's, I believe, granddaughter, not great, but granddaughter and uh, she shared, the granddaughter did, with Alice and with Jim Trulock, uh, some mementos and a range of stories, including story of Chamberlain taking his grandchildren to Little Round Top, to the 20th Main monument. got a picture taken there as well. God, you'd love to know know what Chamberlain said uh, to his grandchildren about that. But I do recall this, that the grandchildren called chamberlain jenny for general for general Uh, uh. so you know i think that might be a good point here chris for you to help us understand how chamberlain made sense and depicted what happened at little round top in the immediate wake of the battle and then we might have some questions and maybe our audience might have some questions and then just sort of take us into the post-war period uh, if, if you could. Uh, but I think starting right at the end of the battle, Chamberlain writes a series of accounts. You know, how mm-hmm. should we try to understand how he understood the fighting? Mm-hmm.
2: We, the first thing I think we need to do, Pete, is we need to recognize that uh, civil war combat is inherently confusing and chaotic. And any one individual has a very uh, limited scope and understanding of, of what they went through. So in the case of the, the Battle of Gettysburg, it's 90 minutes, the Fighting on Little Round Top. It's relatively brief. It was, um, again, confusing. It was chaotic. It was an assault on the senses. Uh, it was this this um, you know, crucible of, of fire and confusion. and Chamberlain is uh, hes a brilliant guy. He's a brilliant, brilliant man. He um, was what I would still call a, a novice in terms of commanding men in battle. He had been in the United States Army for less than a year by that point in time. He's in his mid-30s. He fights this 90-minute battle commanding better part of 350 men. Um, And then when all is said and done, when all is over, Chamberlain, as does virtually every other regimental officer in both armies, uh, has to write a report that is submitted to his superiors that basically outlines his role in the fighting on Little Round Top. And so that's initially written by Chamberlain, I wanna say on the 6th of July, 1863, so a few days after the battle. And in that uh, official report, again, he tries to make sense of what is inherently confusing. Battle. And that's kind of Chamberlain's first attempt to, um, to put into words what he and the surviving men of the 20th Maine went through. But what we'll see with Joshua Chamberlain, and it's to get to your point about Chamberlain bringing his grandkids to the hill, I think that is uh, that's something many, many veterans did, but Chamberlain in particular, I think it's a, a testament to how for Joshua Chamberlain, the Battle of Gettysburg, and more specifically those 90 minutes on Little Round Top would come to define and dominate his life. It's how he understood himself. So everything before his, his sterling academic career, his time uh, at Bowdoin, uh, and everything after governor of Maine, president of Bowdoin College, all of that kind of is important, but it fades into the periphery for Joshua Chamberlain. Chamberlain's life is built on those 90 minutes at at Little Round Top. And um, what we see with Chamberlain is as time passes, Chamberlain's understanding of what he survived and what he did on the hill uh, kind of evolves too. It changes. Chamberlain writes in his lifetime no fewer than depending on how you count, seven accounts of the Battle of Gettysburg and the Fighting a Little Round Top. The first one, as I said, is July 6th, 1863 is official report. The last one is a magazine article that was published in Hearst Magazine. It's called Through Blood and Fire at Gettysburg. And in between those two, you have all these other accounts. And none of those accounts agree 100% with the other. They're all departure points, uh, they're all, um, They're all slightly different in how Chamberlain understands what he did in the hill, what he ordered, what he said, what he didn't say, and his role in it. What I would say is throughout this this post-war period or this post-battle period, Chamberlain understands how important that moment was in his life, and he will guard the story of the Battle of Little Round Top and the hill itself. He will guard it very, very jealously.
1: I'm gonna ask John here, and then you all can, Chris, respond as well. Chris, your point that there is uh, an evolution in how Chamberlain remembered and wrote about uh, the battle and that uh, his depictions of the battle, uh, there's certainly contradictions, tensions among these accounts. So I'm asking you, John, does that make, in your mind, um, does that make Joshua Chamberlain unreliable as a historical witness to what happened at Little Round Top.
0: That's a great question, because we talked about that the other night with Cameron about uh, diaries, memoirs, and stuff like that that's written well after the fact. And when you have all these different narratives from one person, and they are starting to kind of not jive, you know, are starting not to talk to each other, it makes you question some of the legitimacy of some of what he is saying. Uh, and I know that there are people out there who who have questioned that before, or there there are people like we have in our in our discussion area online here who are big Governor K. Warren fans who think that he's a bigger, you know, star than Chamberlain. But I think that um, it really makes you you have to take that into consideration when you look through all this, right, where you're saying, OK, he says this in the 1860s and 1863 on July 6th. But he's saying this in the 1870s or the 1880s so which one is the real one or which one has been maybe blemished a little uh less um you know uh, i think that it goes into the historical memory of the veteran and and uh showcasing what he believes that he did himself or what he didn't do himself and i think that's a a thing that sometimes is a timeless thing with some veterans and and i really think that we have to take all six or or so of those and put them into perspective and say, um, are I, there I, any key um, features or not? You know?
1: So I'll ask us do you believe then that the accounts that Chamberlain wrote, they were closer to the event itself? Do you believe that those accounts by the very fact that they were closer to the event itself, that they're more accurate, more reliable, more trustworthy? Or should we not even be asking that question at all? Is the question I'm asking, not really a very valuable question.
2: I've say a couple things. One, I think everyone wants to be the hero in their own story. And that's true for Joshua Chamberlain. In terms of this idea that, you know, the fact that he writes that initial report so soon after the battle, does that give it a greater degree of authenticity? Do we believe that account more? I don't know if that's always the case, Pete. I don't know if that's always the case. Uh, if you look at a guy like John Batchelder, for example, John Batchelder uh, is kind of the first real official historian of the battle of Gettysburg. He's a, he's a civilian. He shows up while the wounded are still uh, in field hospitals and dedicates the remainder of his life to the study of the battle of Gettysburg. And arguably he knew more about the battle of Little Round Top by the end of his life than a lot of men have fought at the battle of Little Round Top. Hmm. Um, and so, you know, I, I don't necessarily know if that's, if that's the truth, Pete and you know, with Chamberlain, how his story, uh, evolves and, and morphs, it's, I don't think it's something he's necessarily doing intentionally to, to blow his own horn, there might be a little bit of that, but what I think he's doing is he, he is hearing all these other perspectives on the same moment. He's getting all these other viewpoints and he's trying to, to make them com- compatible, if you will, with his own understanding of what he had gone through on the hill and the role that he had played on it. And he actually alludes to this in his speech uh, at the de- dedication of the 20th Maine Monument in the 1880s, uh, that, that men who were there saw things differently doesn't necessarily mean that they were wrong. They might both be right. And so I think as Chamberlain, again, ages, as his understanding of kind of the scope and context of the war and what he did in it changes and evolves, his, his understanding of what he did specifically Uh, evolves as well
1: so um police interrogators and i say this not from experience but (laughs) (laughs) these who do interrogations they say that if a person gives them a story and they call that person back in a day or two later and the person gives the same exact story uh, no changes nothing they are suspicious of that individual the point being is that the idea I think you've alluded to, Chris, and John as well, that, of course, over time when people write an account, there are things that jar their memory, things that they remember this time or a point that they put more emphasis on. So the idea that an account that's written in the immediate aftermath is a more truthful account, I don't think that's a very good question or very actually revealing at all. In fact, you know, the big question, and we'll get back to this at the end, because it's a big question that Chris raised for my students. And I was sorry that Chris couldn't be in our class the following Thursday, because many of them said, "I don't know if there's such thing as truth," and mm-hmm. they hadn't quite gone to the postmodernism camp. They were, they were close. It's very deep. They were. Yeah. It is. It yeah. is. Yeah. But but get, I want to just get one. Some very specific here now, Chris. Uh, and then John you can if you want to jump in
0: yeah
1: and that is was there a bayonet charge by the 20th Maine and did Chamberlain order it
2: (laughs) first thing I'll say is most of us are familiar with the story of the charge of the 20th Maine because of the way that it's depicted in the novel the killer angels and the film Gettysburg and uh, what that does is it portrays this moment in the heat of the fighting at Little Round Top when the 20th Maine is on the verge of collapse. Uh, they're out of ammunition. The Confederates are, are getting ready to renew their assault. This would be the 15th and 47th Alabama. And in a moment of divine inspiration, Joshua Chamberlain, as portrayed by Jeff Daniels, uh, brings all of his company commanders together. It brings all of his, uh, his lieutenants together there's a lull in the fighting, so he can hear everything he's saying, the crescendo dies down, and Chamberlain uh, gives this very well choreographed and orchestrated maneuver that the 20th Maine will swing down the slopes a little round top, the left wing will come into alignment with the right, they'll go charging down the hill and drive the Confederates back. And in the film, Gettysburg is portrayed again as if it's this really well orchestrated thing. Um, when you read, the accounts of the men that were there, the men of the 20th Maine, there's not one single individual who remembers that moment in the same way. Even Joshua Chamberlain, when I talked about how Chamberlain's uh, narrative of the battle changes and evolves over time, this bayonet charge, this kind of climactic moment of the fighting on Little Round Top is a perfect example of this. So Chamberlain in his initial report says, I ordered the charge. I ordered a charge. Fast forward a few years later. It's now the early 1880s, and the United States government is creating what we call the official records of the War of the Rebellion, 127-volume series, primary sources on the battle. Reports, dispatches, memos, you name it. It's a massive collection. I have some of them over there. They're compiling uh, these uh, reports from the Battle of Gettysburg. They find that... Chamberlain's is missing. And so they have him rewrite it essentially from memory. And that's the version that's published in the official records. It's not mm-hmm. Chamberlain's original July 6, 1863 report. It's Joshua Chamberlain in the early 1880s trying to remember what he wrote in that initial report. Uh, and, and you'll notice differences. So in the original report, Joshua Chamberlain says, I ordered a charge, ordered charge. And in that original report, he has no idea the name of the hill he fought on. He just calls it uh, the you know, Rocky Spur or a little Rocky Hill. Mm-hmm. In the 1880s report that he redid by memory, he um, says that he ordered the bayonet. He doesn't say he ordered the charge. Of course, he refers to the hill as Little Round Top. Um, the second in command of the 20th a man by the name of Major Ellis Spear, he's commanding the left wing of the regiment And Spear is in many ways kind of the the anti-Joshua Chamberlain. He had a very different understanding of the war and his role in it. He didn't find anything terribly ennobling about the conflict. It was just something that he was compelled to do because he thought it was the right thing to do. Uh, And Ellis Spear would write, I got no order from Chamberlain. I didn't hear him say anything. I didn't see anything. Uh, The first thing he knows, he looks to his right. He sees the colors going down the hill with the center of the regiment. And he's like, oh, shucks. I guess that's what we're going to do, too. And that's what happens. Uh, So, you know, the idea that it was this well-orchestrated thing? No. Mm -hmm. Happened? Did the men of the 20th Maine hurl themselves down the lower slope of Little Round Top into the men of the 15th uh, Alabama? Yes, that did. That happened. Virtually everyone agrees. The regiment advanced. Uh, They charged uh, down the hill. But no one remembered that moment the same way.
1: Mm -hmm. But... But now just look at the Confederate perspective though. What, what did Oates ultimately say about the charge and its impact if it had an impact at all?
2: Here's what, uh, and of course, William C. Oates is the Colonel of the 15th Alabama. It's the, the primary regiment that the 20th Maine is facing on Little Round Top. And Oates will say, Oates will, will remember the battle for a variety of reasons. One, his brother is killed on the hill or mortally wounded. Oates would say that at the time the 20th Maine advanced, he had already made the decision to retreat. He was already getting ready to pull back and then go up the slopes to Big Roundtop. He knew uh, he wasn't making any headway, and so he was saying, oh, "I was ready to fall back, anyways." Uh, but then he would later say, "Of the the impact of the charge of the 20th Maine, that his men quote ran like a herd of wild cattle," uh, and, and Oates is so physically, and mentally, and emotionally spent he actually uh, passes out on the summit of Big Round Top. So Oates will say that, yeah, the charge happened and it was certainly nothing good for the men of the 15th Alabama, but that wasn't the, that wasn't the pivot point in the story. He was already pulling his regiment back. That's what Oates will say.
0: One of the uh, one of people watching Gilbert John asked, when was the original 60, uh, 63 report discovered if it was missing for the ORs?
2: I wanna say a copy of it was found, and don't quote me on this, but I believe a copy of it was found in the Maine State Archives, um, up in Maine, up in New England, and then there's actually a supplement to the official report, uh, or the official records, and I believe his his uh, original report may have been republished in that, but don't quote me on that either. But I believe a copy was forwarded to the governor of Maine in 1863, and it was filed away in the Maine State Archives, and that's that's how we got the original report.
0: Okay. I, I'd like to play devil's advocate for a second if I would, because Pete usually does, but I'll, I'll try this time. Um, so we have all this focus on Chamberlain. Obviously he's in our title. Who do, you, who do you think is forgotten about on Little Round Top the most for what their actions were?
2: Who is forgotten about the most? No, that's a tough question. Um, you know, For a lot of the Gettysburg battle buffs, we always try to to pick out, you know, the real hero of Little Round Top, right? Was it John Vincent? Was it Governor Warren? Was it Joshua Chamberlain? Uh, was it Patrick O'Rourke who's, who's killed on the hill? Was it Charles Hazlitt whose uh, guns are literally dragged up the slope? I mean, in a certain sense, it's kind of a reductionist thing, right? I mean, it's taking something really complex and trying to boil it down to it was this guy, this is this is the man. This is the man, uh, yeah. You know, what? I, more often than not, though, what I find most compelling are the individual uh, soldiers that make up the ranks of the 20th Maine or the 83rd Pennsylvania. And I think for um, a lot of our kind of interpretive efforts on the, the Hill, we spend a lot of time talking about Chamberlain and Warren or Rourke and Vincent, and it's often at the detriment of the, the rank and file individuals who clung to the Hill for 90 minutes under inconceivable uh, stress, this inconceivable uh, moment Uh, and so I think uh, the rank and file and how they remembered the
0: battle is fascinating. How do you like that answer Pete? Uh,
1: I'm I'm, I'm right there with you because I've always been somewhat distressed when people want to come to a battle, any battle, Hmm. and they want to extract a moment from that battle in which all the events hinged upon which as we know is as Chris has said is incredibly reductionist and and I guess it leads me to ask Chris something that I've sensed um since it from even my students but certainly have sensed it when I've gone and given talks and that's a backlash against Chamberlain and so can you yeah. talk to us a little bit about and and hopefully you perceive the same thing or I'm gonna to have to explain it. Uh, <laughs> what is this backlash? Why, why, is, it, why, why is it happening?
2: I'd say, I was here that, I'd say to that, I think there are actually kind of two backlashes. One happens at the kind of end of Chamberlain's life in the 1900s, 1910s, and then more recently uh, following the movie Gettysburg uh, and kind of the Renaissance of Chamberlain because he was a relatively, I won't call him an unknown figure. But he certainly wasn't the Joshua Chamberlain that we know today. For most of the 20th century, he kind of receded into the past and became, you know, a bit of a, a footnote. And I don't know if this is something that is, is peculiar, uh, particularly kind of an American thing to do, maybe, where whenever anybody gets gets too high, uh, we want to drag them down a little bit, mm-hmm. or maybe, you know, we become um, a bit skeptical of our heroes, and so we kind of. Squ- Uh, wants to uh, find some dirt on them, but make them human, maybe. I I would say there is this kind of uh, backlash against Chamberlain. And I think that has nothing to do with Joshua Chamberlain. I think it has more to do with uh, people in maybe my position or your position who see this focus on this one guy and this one moment in the battle, and all of this intellectual energy is spent uh, talking about Joshua Chamberlain and the 20th Maine, you know, meanwhile, there are moments of, of courage and cowardice and desperation and, and, and bravery and ignorance and stupidity all across the battlefield that are just as compelling and that are just as significant as what Joshua Chamberlain and the 20th Maine did. And so sometimes I think, We have this habit of uh, trying to course correct and one individual monopolizes the story too much. And so we pull away from them. And sometimes we pull too far away and we become objective when we talk about them. I think that's maybe where we're at right now.
1: I'd add to this. I think that it's a little bit, not a little little bit, I think it has a lot to deal with the lost cause. No one has any issues. focusing on Richard Ewell's mistakes at Cemetery Hill and Jackson's absence, and to say that everything hinged upon that. No one has any reservations to elevate James Longstreet as the person who, if only Lee had listened to him, things would have turned out differently. But you do this for, a, again, granted, a man who commanded a regiment. But I think what bothers those of the lost cause ilk is that they see in Chamberlain a man who upheld high ideas about the union cause. He was really no abolitionist, but certainly he came to understand as others did in the Army of the Potomac, that union and emancipation were inseparable. And so what strikes me is that the resistance to Chamberlain now uh, is much of what you have said, but I think it speaks to what persists and it that, that, as an interpretive challenge that you, your colleagues, that John and I face, And that's that the battle of Gettysburg is not the battle that Lee lost. It's the battle that George Gordon Meade and the army of the Potomac won. And it's a battle in which they were able to redeem themselves as an army. And it's a battle in which the cause for union and for emancipation, men died for that. They knew what they were dying for. I'm not trying to make this a war of saints on the Northern side and sinners on the Southern side, but I'm still shocked by the struggle and the challenge that we all have in getting people to understand that high ideas didn't matter to men on both sides, on both sides. But the cause for union, Joshua Chamberlain was a believer in that. And he was such an eloquent spokesperson for that cause. I just want to throw something real quickly in. Here's my, I'm, I love Gettysburg, I live in Gettysburg, but I did my seasonal work at Battlefields in Virginia And I just wanted to just a little disagreement with Chris. Joshua Chamberlain, he would probably have argued, I I believe, that it was what he did during the last two weeks of the war that were the most important things he ever did. He wrote a book about it. He didn't write a book about Little Round Top. He wrote a book, The Passing of the Armies. There it is. It goes from the Lewis farmhouse to the White Oak Road. Now, once again, Chamberlain is at the center of those battles, but he was truly remarkable. He saved the fifth corps at the Battle of White Oak Road and not to mention of course, his role in the surrender at Appomattox. So again, Gettysburg certainly um, was something that Chamberlain drew immense pride from. And as you pointed out, Chris, he was very territorial about in terms of this is my site, this is my battle, and I want people to understand it my way. But we should not forget what Jocelyn Chamberlain did during those last few weeks of the war. And Passing to the Armies, I think, is, is a brilliant
0: book. Mm-hmm. What, about, what about, Chris, with the, uh, there was a book several years ago that came out that talked about the myth of Little Round Top and saying about how important it was. And uh, we actually had a question here from Tom Shea where he, uh, he says, I'd like to hear opinions on what rebels would have done if they would have taken it. It seems a small artillery platform. Plus, the Union Sixth Corps would soon be available to retake it. Was it really an area of significance we have been led to believe, or is that more something that came along later through the eyes of the veterans?
2: You know, I'm not a tactician. I'm not a strategist. Um, The Hill is important. George Meade says it. Governor Warren says it. And I I don't think there's any getting around that. The Hill is significant. What I would say is if the Confederates are able on July 2nd to take any of the main Union line, they're able to capture Little Roundtop. If they're able to gain a significant lodgment on Cemetery Hill or on Cemetery Ridge, and Union troops can't drive them off, the Union Army and its position at Gettysburg is untenable. So, you know, I think. There is danger in, in blowing the story of, of Little Round Top out of you know, reasonable proportion. It was one part of a, a much larger battle. If the Confederates had taken the hill, I have no idea what would have happened. I have no idea. Uh, you know, history is full of so many contingencies, right? Where you know one thing is dependent on the other or uh, you know uh, one event hinges upon this other event. Um, and I think the, the artillery platform on Little Round Top, we make too much of that. We make mm-hmm. too much. If Confederates take Little Roundtop and if they can hold it, the Wheatfield Road is off limits to the Union Army. They can't really use that road anymore. The Tawny Town Road uh, becomes untenable for the Union Army, and that's an incredibly significant roadway. It's a line of uh, retreat, communication, I mean, you name it. So if the Confederates get the hill, the Union Army is gonna have to react, they're gonna have to respond. Whether or not the Sixth Army Corps would have been able to drive the Confederates off, I have no idea whether or not the Confederates after they literally had fought for 90 minutes on this rugged terrain uh, would have had the, the ability to hold the hill for any duration. I have no idea. I think a more interesting question is why did certain participants feel the way that they did about the hill? Uh, what, what was it that you know, Joshua Chamberlain thought about Little Round Top? What was it that uh, Governor Warren thought about Little Round Top and its its place in, in the story of the Battle of Gettysburg, or even William C. Oates for that matter. So I think that's a much to me, a more interesting question than trying to, you know, divine what would have happened had the Confederates taken the hill. Like I said, Confederates capture any stretch of the Union battle line, and they're able to hold it—a a dire situation then for the Army of the Potomac. Chris, you just said about the how we remember
1: the battlefield. I, I find an interesting story that you told me A Little Round Top, and it involves the rock wall. And mm-hmm. Joshua Chamberlain's more than frustration about the rock wall. Could you just tell us about how that historic landscape, how Chamberlain wanted it to be reconstructed yeah. and remembered? It's fascinating.
2: You know, this gets back to Little Round Top as the defining moment in Chamberlain's life. And I agree with you, Pete, the last few weeks of the war for Chamberlain uh, are incredibly important to him. Obviously, he writes this you know, massive tome about the last months of the Army of the Potomac following them from Five Forks all the way to you know, the, the Grand Review. But it's Little Round Top that uh, Joshua Chamberlain uh, petitions to get the Medal of Honor for. Any petitions? It's Little Round Top that uh, he visits time and time again. Uh, it's Little Round Top that he again guards very jealously. And Chamberlain understood, I think, as well as anyone, the power of place. And he has this oft-quoted line about Gettysburg being this vision place of souls and reverent men and women from afar, generations that know us not and that we know not of shall come here, heart drawn to see where uh, great things were done for them. And I butchered that quote, but it's well known. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that's how he understands Little Round Top. That's where his story is going to be told. That's where his his life, more than anywhere else, is gonna be remembered. And so he wants to make sure that that hill speaks for him and for what he did on July 2nd. So if you go to Little Round Top today, the monument to the 20th Main is on what we call Vincent Spur. It's this little kind of rocky shelf that juts southeast from the main summit of Little Round Top. And that's where the 20th Main fight. They're on the hill maybe five minutes before Confederates' attack. They don't have time to pile up rock. They don't have time to entrench. They don't have time to fell trees. So they're gonna use whatever natural protection they can find on the hillside. Uh, The undulations in the ground, the boulders, the trees, that's their only protection. They fight for 90 minutes. They drive the Confederates back. The war goes on and Gettysburg soon becomes a a preserved landscape. First by the Gettysburg Battlefield Mm -hmm. Memorial Association and then by uh, the War Department. United States government. And the, the agencies that managed the battlefield park had a, an enormous amount of challenges. And the story of the rock walls on Little Round Top is a great example of this. So as I mentioned, Chamberlain and his men, they had no protection, they had no walls. After the fighting on Little Round Top's over, they're actually sent in the night up Big Round Top to take that summit. And then reinforcements move basically in behind them and occupy that stretch of Little Round Top. And they have no idea that there's not going to be any more fighting on the hill. They have no idea what's going to happen next. And so they do what soldiers do. They stack up. They build defensive works. That's the rock walls that we see there today. Those rock walls were a source of incredible consternation to Joshua Chamberlain because he didn't want Americans, be it in the 1890s or the 1990s, he didn't want Americans going to that spur, and thinking his men had time to build rocks, that they had any kind of protection to hide behind. Uh, he wanted to convey the idea that for the men of the 20th Maine, this is a stand up fight between two opposing battle lines. Uh, and so he would, he would petition the park, then the, the War Department managed it. He would petition them time and again to have those walls removed from the hill, to have them taken off the spur. Again, to convey this impression to visitors that his men, they didn't have anything like that. And the, the uh, head of the, the War Department Commission, the Park Commission at the time, was a man by the name of John Page Nicholson. And Nicholson was getting letters from Joshua Chamberlain up until the last year of his life. Chamberlain trying to use whatever political military leverage he had to get the commission to move those rock walls. And uh, Nicholson would write to one of his colleagues that having to say no to Joshua Chamberlain was one of the great trials of his life. (laughs) What ended up happening is the War Department created a little tablet, no bigger than my laptop, really, maybe a little bit bigger, that today sits along Sykes Avenue, uh, right beneath one of those walls that Chamberlain loathed. And it said, basically, these walls were built for defense on July 3rd, 1863. And it's the only... Memorial or marker or tablet that I know of in the park, whose sole function is to correct a misconception, uh, and because Joshua Chamberlain hated those walls, because one little round top to speak for him, and he was so protective of it that even a a stack of uh, breastworks is too much. You got to remove it. Of course, they're still there today. <laughs>
1: Do we have John? Do we have any questions? If not, I was going to have Chris comment on a book
0: here, a few books before we leave. Oh, you can, uh, you can have him comment on that a while I'll look back and see what we got.
1: So you know, uh, Joshua Chamberlain's correspondence is, mm-hmm. reckon, in my reckoning, at least two or if not three different volumes. This is the one edited by Thomas Dejardin, who I believe used to work at the park at one point. At, at yeah, yeah.
2: he's forgotten more about the twentieth Maine and Chamberlain I'll ever know. Uh, yeah. he- a couple of wonderful books. Um, that one is, is a great job. Um, another one, "Stand Firm, You Boys" from Maine, which is probably the best account of the fighting of the 20th Maine on Little Round Top. That, that's you, who's published that? Do you know? It used to be Thomas Publications. I, I, I don't think they have. I don't think they still do it. I believe it is still available though. It's still available.
1: And this is published by Osprey. I think this is available uh, as well. What was Desjardins also did a just I thought a brilliant book. And it's not called the myths of Gettysburg. I, I don't remember the exact title. And i hoping, Chris, that you'll be able to pull it out. This hallowed ground, perhaps? He takes a number of different case studies. One is yes. Chamberlain, and it's just a wide range of things. It's really, really exceedingly well done. Looking in essence, sort of various myths. He has a piece on John Batch- Batchelder as well. Yeah. I mean, really, yeah, it's really, really well, well done. It is very well done. And This is the other book, Chris, I don't know if you have any feelings about this, um, edited by Jeremiah, is
2: it Goka? Have you, do you know this very well? That is a, a wonderful book. It's Chamberlain's letters, primarily you know, post-war,
0: uh,
2: during his time as governor of Maine, president of Bowdoin College, but so much of what he writes goes back to the American Civil War. Uh, there's a, a fantastic letter in that. Uh, book that Chamberlain writes. I want to say in 1892 or 1893 to um, Alexander Webb, and Webb and Chamberlain have this collegial relationship after the war. Uh, Webb in 1892 receives the Medal of Honor for his defense of Cemetery Ridge in July 3rd, and Chamberlain desperately, desperately wanted a Medal of Honor, and so he wrote to Webb, basically asking Webb, okay, how do I get one of these things? <laughs>
1: It gives me an idea. I I didn't know that Chamberlain had petitioned for a Medal of Honor. I think I'm going to petition for a Pulitzer Prize.
2: You should. should. I don't know if I'm going to get it if I make an appeal. Here's the thing with Chamberlain, though. Here's the thing with Chamberlain about the Medal of Honor. He desperately wanted it. He didn't necessarily want other people to know how desperately he wanted it. And he wanted to try to convey the impression that he felt he deserved it, though he wasn't asking for it. Wow. Kind of washingtonian almost it yeah it is and he, he had in that letter to webb um he's talking about how he needs uh witnesses to testify of his heroics and he says you know unfortunately for me anyone that can speak of any act of mine uh was a victim of the environment or mostly killed yeah. for little round talk, he's right
1: and then here's the biography that i mentioned earlier in the hands of providence by alice trulock and she really um Co- co-wrote this book with her husband, Jim Trulock, uh, both happen to be uh, from Indianapolis. And I I remember, again, those conversations that they had with Chamberlain's granddaughter and the artifacts she gave to the Trulocks, they passed on to Chamberlain's home in Bowdoin. I don't know if either one of you, have you been up to Chamberlain's house at Bowdoin? I have, yeah. I have. And uh, The thing that, of course, uh, struck me was the gift that he gave his wife, Fanny, and their marriage was very strained after the war, um, in part because he could not stop, of course, living the war. He's like that high school football player, and that's the glory days, and he just can't get, back, get beyond that. Mm-hmm. And I'll never forget looking at the bracelet, a bracelet that he had custom made for his wife, and every bracket on that bracelet, bracelet was the name of one of the battles Chamberlain had fought in. Hmm.
2: Hell, he might as well have given her a bowling ball right? <laughs> uh, for that kind of gift. Yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong, but the center stone is red. It's a red Maltese cross, right? Yeah. Do you know of- another letter, though, about the jewelry? He, and I don't remember, it's
1: to Fanny, it's to his wife, and he's writing about Strong Vincent and how the officers had come together and pooled their money to buy a pendant of sorts, and it had... um small little diamonds around it. And I believe that you could open it up, I assume to put a picture of Strong Vincent or maybe a lock of his hair. And they of course gave it to Strong Vincent's widow. And But the letter is so amazing because he he writes about taking that pendant and waving it in front of himself. And that it almost put him in this sort of hypnotized state. And he felt this deep sense of melancholy and connection But I was then very moved by the last line in which he reminded his wife that he and his fellow officers had not succumbed to savagery, that they still had been able to retain a sense of being civilized and decent and Christian men. And uh, those letters, if you can piece them all together because they are published in different accounts from the OR to the private letters, uh, it really is quite remarkable. And then you get out on the battlefield with someone like Chris Gwynn And I won't get into details about all the things that I got wrong out there. And Chris spent some time in a very, very encouraging coach, I think has got me finally set, but I always pick up some new things. Chris, unfortunately, I don't want to say this, but it is true that with his current position, a very important one at Gettysburg, he is chief of interpretation. He is responsible for getting his team prepared and ready to go out into the field, which means what? Like any good officer, he is often behind the lines, which is a damn shame because you all can tell he is a hell of an interpreter. So Mm -hmm. I hope, Chris, you will make an appearance from time to time and uh, out in the field where you belong. Yeah. Anytime,
0: anytime. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, I I do have one question before we wrap up here uh, and it's from our friend, John Tracy. He's he's on here watching and uh, he says, do you see any individuals from other regiments fighting on low round top, pushing back against Chamberlain or are they content with the okay. thing that increased the profile of the location?
2: Yes. Uh, even within the 20th Maine, there are people that push back, uh, a mm-hmm. for example, uh, later in life, uh, pushes back on, on Chamberlain's story. Uh, Oliver Wilcox Norton, who is a bugler with strong Vincent, uh, is another example of that. Hmm. And there's this very interesting correspondence between Ellis Speer and uh, Oliver Wilcox Norton about Chamberlain. And Speer at one point uh, starts to refer to Chamberlain's uh, colossal egotism. And Speer shares this one story with Norton. And it was at a Bowdoin College commencement when Chamberlain was president of the college. And Ellis Speer at this point is also a Bowdoin graduate. I think on the board of directors or something like that. But it's commencement. And all the students and faculty, they're all sitting in what I assume some sort of uh, auditorium. And Chamberlain walks in in his academic regalia and he goes down the center of the aisle. And Ellis Spears sees two students kind of turn and whisper to each other. And says, uh, and they say in this hushed tone, uh, there goes the man that that took Little Roundtop.'" And Chamberlain heard this and he stopped, turned to those two young students and he said something to the effect of, Yes, I took it and held it too, and then continued walking. And Spear overheard this. And he would uh, write to Oliver Wilcox Norton that uh, it seemed as though uh, Chamberlain was stealing from the dead. And Chamberlain should have stopped and said, no, that title belongs to Strong Vincent. Wow,
0: wow, very
1: neat. That's a great way to end. Uh, John, who do we have up on Thursday? Who do we have up on Thursday? That's a great question. I think it's Mr. Harold Holzer.
0: It is Mr. Harold Holzer, isn't it? I have to prepare we're for the, that one there.
1: Yeah, one of the leading Lincoln scholars. He is going right. to uh, we're going to have a conversation with him. Yeah, about times in American history in which our presidents have drawn upon the inspiration of Abraham Lincoln. So uh, I'd be prepared for a very lively conversation. Uh, Harold is incredibly, like I said, engaging and his knowledge of all things related to Lincoln is truly
0: staggering. So Thursday,
1: seven o'clock, is that correct, John?
0: Yes, it's gonna be an honor to have him on. It's gonna be awesome. It will.
1: It will. It's it an honor me. to have
0: Chris too. I'll it be- is,
1: and you know, we should just also say that the three of us with Jim Broomall, we have all worked together. It's really been a wonderful uh, partnership and we are all the three of us and I maybe Jim will get in the mix as well. We're hoping to do some more programming over the summer. We all know that things are so unpredictable and with the social distancing that certainly uh, put some constraints on what we'd like to do. But, but we are in earnest conversation and I'm quite, I'm quite confident that we will come up with some things on the battlefield or in a classroom, but we're gonna, the three of us, with Jim Ruhmall, uh, we'll be doing some things. I know this summer. Absolutely.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Chris, for- Oh, absolutely, for having- pleasure. Pleasure. Thank, <laughs> thank you for having me. Right, thank, thank you, everyone. Thank you everyone for watching. Take care of yourselves. Good night.